Welcome to I Hate It Here, the podcast for HR and people professionals, making the hardest job in the world just a little bit easier. I'm Hibi Youssef. The delta between what I expect in exchange for my time and what you expect as an employer in exchange for the money has never been farther apart. And we're kind of on like this expectation death spiral where employers are expecting more and more. And that's because investors and their customers want more from them as brands and businesses. But as employees, we feel like we're getting less and less because we're comparing the experience of work to other experiences that we're having. Welcome to everybody who's joined us. I'm so excited to have you all here. This is the season premiere of HR Therapy Season 2. If you're joining us for the first time, get ready for the party. If you've been here before, you know what we're going to do. So let's dive in. Now, who am I and who's David? I'm Hippa Yusuf. I am the Chief People Officer at Workweek. It's my day job. My night job is I am the founder and creator of I Hate It Here. It's a newsletter focused on workplace cultures and how to make them better. And joining me today is David. David, do you want to introduce yourself? Thanks, Hippa. I'm David Garcia. I'm the president of a company called Newstand. We're a venture-backed startup based in New York. We help companies produce better employee experiences on-site, off-site, and everywhere in between. I'm really grateful to join you here. I'm super passionate about well-being at work because I've experienced how considerations for well-being affect mission adoption, team development, and performance for most of my life. I first became a people leader when I was 15 years old, running a field marketing team of 20 to 30 people full-time in high school. I spent the majority of my career at Verizon, starting as a frontline employee and culminating as the head of our in-house innovation team. I then went on to spend time in innovation consulting before joining Newstead. What I can tell you is across organizations, big or small, public or private, the employee experiences challenges kind of persist and are consistent. I'm excited to share with you some of the things that I've learned, jam with Hiba and poke the corporate bear. Well, it's a real talk too. Thank you, David, for joining well, us. Really. I'm so excited. Y'all, the first time David and I met, one, it was like probably the best meeting I'd had ever, but we just instantly dove into all the things that like I'm very passionate about and he's very passionate about. And we found a lot of alignment between how we feel about companies and employees and how they're treated and what they expect from their employers. So I am so excited to dive into this conversation today. Uh, before we do, though, you know, I like to like shake things up. I asked the question and I would love to hear from all of you. What's one thing at work that makes you unhappy? Whoever said repeating myself is like, they're my spirit animal. Oh, I hate that as well. Do you ever, I sometimes I have moments of passive aggressiveness where I'm like, as I said before, and then I have to be like, well, can't say that. <laughs> Let me remind you what I have said before. You're getting some great answers. Lack of communication is such a big one. We're all terrible communicators. That's like a hot take of mine. As much as we all say we're great communicators, we're not. Disrespect, lack of accountability, passive aggressiveness. I see you, whoever said that. Bureaucracy. Plus, plus one on bureaucracy. Yeah. Oh, man. Micromanaging. Unsupportive leadership. Poor leadership. Um, while they're putting them in, David, any of these are surprised to see? No. <laughs> and, and, I, and I'm saying no, because I think the experience that we all have at work is universal, and sometimes we don't talk about it. And so this is a great forum to express ourselves, uh, because a lot of times these experiences go unsaid, or we put them in the background because we're trying to put our best selves forward at work. Relationships with work feel like weirdly toxic, no matter how great they can be. There's still moments where you're like, oh, I don't feel good about that. 
And someone wrote abusive managers. I'm really sorry if you had to experience that. And I can tell you, you are not alone. I think it comes from one expectations around how you're supposed to behave and uh, the vocabulary you're supposed to use. Also, if you have psychological safety, um, can you actually express yourself in a way where you feel like there won't be retribution? And unfortunately, a lot of workplace cultures don't, don't encourage that. No, I mean, like, does anyone also have psychological safety with their family? That's like a separate conversation with that. I'm like, oh, like, we're not getting on our family. We might not be getting it at work either. Uh, okay, now the fun part of our presentation, the live Q&A. David and I are going to get into it, but let's dive in. David, the first question I'm going to ask, because I feel like everyone has a different definition. What is well-being? That is what we are talking about today. But what is it exactly? I think for the context of this conversation, I define well-being as an individual's comfort, health, and happiness. Peeling back the onion, it's kind of your emotional state while working. And I think it's really important for us to align that your well-being on a given day, you know, minute by minute, is based on a variety of influences. Some of those are work-related and others are unrelated. What is true, though, is that your well-being has a direct effect on your ability to communicate, the kinds of relationships that you build and how you perform at work. And so I like to look at well-being through the context of somebody's emotional state. So if I ask you, did you experience stress for most of yesterday? What would you say? Yes. Yes. Unfortunately, you say yes. Around half the people you ask would say yes. 44% of people will tell you they experienced daily worry. 22% of people would say they were sad or angry. So when you consider all of the things we're trying to accomplish as organizations, entrepreneurs, people leaders, as humans working with other humans, half of everyone you're speaking with is in a persistent state of stress. And so when you think about well-being and the role that well-being plays at work, I think that underscores its prevalence and its impact. Oh, I can't believe I told you I was stressed at work. It's interesting because I... They're all, <laughs> A lot of things cause the stress, but how, how we all react to stress too is really different. And so when you're thinking like half the people are stressed at work, some people are just like quietly stressed. Others are very loudly stressed. It's just something, another layer and complex for us to work through as like people leaders in the space as well. No one is going to show up exactly the same. But then if you think about everyone has the stress too. Now, how does that manifest for different people? Part of it is having an awareness around that person, how they normally respond, what their behavior is like. In the same way that we just mentioned psychological safety when it comes to communicating the challenges at work, that also exists in kind of somebody's everyday everyday moment. They may not express that they're stressed out or feeling worry or sadness. And so the kind of expectations around performance are still there. And so you try to put it in on the back burner, but unfortunately it has a real impact on your day-to-day. I feel like the pan- if the pandemic taught us anything other than a lot of really hard lessons, some good lessons we also learned is that we're not showing up to work as robots. Like each person is showing up, taking in the trauma they've experienced in life, their lived experience, and that does show up in work in the day to day. And I think for a while it felt like we were told so often, like, leave all of that at home and show up as something else. And I think the pandemic exposed that, like, that's not actually healthy. We can't just turn off what's happening in life and show up to work and be expected to produce eight out of eight hours a day. I think the pandemic advanced a lot of the conversation here, but we are reverting back to the meme. The antibodies are coming out and kind of pushing back on 
what is the the employer's role in helping foster well being? You know, the idea of taking a mental health day, and, and, and I didn't intend to talk about psychological safety here, but just even expressing something like that requires a, a significant level of effort on behalf of the employee. I think like part of this is about workplace culture. What are the universally accepted behaviors in your company? You know, do you make taking a break okay? Do you make you know, uh, hey, I don't want, I, I can't join that meeting right now. You know, is there backlash or retribution? And these kind of like lower effort ways to protect yourself, are they accepted by your employer, by your colleagues and by your teams? I used to have a boss that'd be like, can you talk right now? And I'd be like, no, like who, who can drop everything they're doing and talk right now? Like there are some things that are emergencies and I can do that. There are other things that are like, absolutely not. But I didn't have the trust oftentimes to tell her no. So I would just drop what I was doing and say yes. And the stress was awful. It would just set me over the edge. I would end every day like deflated and really sad about work, which kind of leads into the next question. So I asked everybody at the poll about like things that make you unhappy at work. I asked because there's this like kind of conversation happening that like all employees are just unhappy. Like engagement is down and people are just we're unhappy as a society. So I I put this question in here because, Dave, I want to know, like, why do employees seem unhappy for the people that are calling it out? The thing about well-being is that while it is daily, like it is a daily experience and you oscillate between meetings and minute by minute, it's also anchored in your outlook for the future. So if you have a positive outlook for the future, you're more likely to you know report better well-being. So you, you can think about like just how directly correlated that is to your perspective on your career, your employer, your colleagues. But like if I think about why why people are unhappy. I think about it as work is a value exchange and, you know, it's been this way for a long time. All right. You pay me money. I exchange my time and, and you, you get productivity, but the Delta between what I expect in exchange for my time and what you expect as an employer in exchange for the money has never been farther apart. And we're kind of on like this expectation death spiral where employers are expecting more and more and that's because investors and their customers want more from them as brands and businesses but as employees we feel like we're getting less and less because we're comparing the experience of work to other experiences that we're having then you've kind of seen this at work in changes to software and business operations right so software has changed because consumer software has changed but management techniques haven't changed in 50 years. Only 2% of people get daily recognition. And so this kind of like legacy view of the value exchange, which is I'm the employer and I'm paying you to disassociate how you're feeling from your work. You know, while the pandemic has changed that, like there, there's things that still linger. And so I, I think as businesses and employers, we need to change the view to I as the employer are pinning you and enabling you to do your best work, which is a different frame, right? It's still a value exchange, but my role in that is as an enabler. And so I have to consider you as a person and you as a performer and how do I get the best work out of you and with you? So I, I just think it's like the, the value exchange is askew and there's a response from both parties that is causing a lot of friction. I can't disagree. Remember you, when you and I were talking about this earlier, it was like your last best experience becomes your next minimum experience. 
So if you have a, someplace you work that's great and you have the best experience there, you're going to take that expectation into your next job and say, I expect them to be just as great as this last place I was. So I, I spent my back, you know, a lot of time in, you know, customer journey mapping and really understanding human experience, right? And this idea that you compare experiences across different categories. Why is booking a plane harder than booking an Uber? 20 years ago, you didn't think like that. You didn't, you didn't make those comparisons and you do now. And so that starts to extend into the workplace, how you engage with other people, how you engage with the institution that you work for. It's all being shaped and your expectations as a person are being shaped by other experiences you're having, either with your community, with other groups that you may be associated with. It's just shaping how you assess your employer. It's been really interesting, honestly, like the pendulum between who has the power is like an interesting thing. I like observing between like employees and employer. And it felt like in the pandemic, it really shifted to the employees to say, I demand these things from my employer. And now it feels like we're in like a tug of war where like employers are like, no, 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 you have to come back to the office. No, no, no. I will not give you the benefits that I did give you two years ago because we're in a different time now. And so that's also just been fascinating to watch because I think employee sentiment also is impacted there when you think about who has the power at what time. That's the reversion to the mean. Like how this evolution is going to land and shake out, no one knows. We don't know where the power center will be coming out of this moment. I think it's our responsibility to recognize and take, take in the learnings and internalize the learnings that we made during the pandemic where we had this massive shared experience about work and how we're working and try to the best of our abilities to incorporate that going forward because there's going to be a pull backwards to what was either acceptable before or what is perceived to be acceptable going forward. And I don't want those learnings to be abandoned. It really worries me some days where I'm like, we cannot go back to pre-pandemic work, but people are trying to force this back there. And it's just, it's not for me. Like, I, I don't stand for that. We can't, we can't, like, we can't go back to what we used to do. It doesn't work. A lot of people struggled going into the pandemic with working styles, right? I, we were a completely uh, presence-based uh, work modality. Then you move into a remote work modality. Now you're trying to figure out hybrid. The fact of the matter is like humans have collaborated in person for thousands of years. And so presence is really meaningful. That doesn't mean that you need to be present all the time. And so how do you, as an employer, shape the work and shape the experience of work together, right? So like, are you making presence meaningful, introducing moments of collaboration, brainstorming, making strategic decisions, and then creating time and space for deep focus work and productivity? So it's a balance. I mean, we're going to get into this in the next question. So the next question is, how do employers positively affect employee well-being? So now we've talked a lot about what well-being is, why there's a sentiment of employees are happy or unhappy, or just how employees are feeling. But a lot of folks in this audience are HR professionals, and they want to know how can employers actually positively affect employee well-being? So to me, this is a culture question. And again, aligning on definitions, I think about culture as the way teams manifest, share, and protect their collective beliefs. And so the first step is, do you believe that well-being is important? <laughs> And then if you believe well-being is important, how is that manifested? And then how is it protected? So I think there are three things that an employer can do to promote well-being. 
The first one is introduce healthy, guilt-free downtime. Downtime today makes up like 20% of the workday, but it's one of the most necessary aspects of your day. Downtime increases productivity, uh, it increases creativity, it improves brain health. The challenge is, is that downtime can either be unhealthy or you, when you engage in downtime, you have what's called productivity guilt. Productivity guilt is a little bit of the hustle culture kind of dragging over into how you're, you're assessing yourself, where you're feeling like you should be doing more. And so mm-hmm. productivity guilt you know, in, in a workplace culture can be reinforced formally like when you reward effort instead of outcomes, or it could be rewarded informally with like a late night message from the boss and the expectation that like, you know, you're responding. And so productivity guilt is something that we both need to address formally and informally to make sure that downtime is successful. The second thing though, which I think is more important is that downtime is like sleep. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. So most downtime today is spent browsing the web. I don't think I need to express that like death scrolling Twitter is not good for your brain health. And so, you know, as an employer, I think the first thing you need to do is make downtime, refreshing, recharging, socially acceptable. And you can do that formally by, let's say, scheduling meetings to default for 15 or 45 minutes or eliminating stacked meetings where you go back to back so people have times to refresh. You can even do something like Shopify did recently, which is remove all recurring meetings. If you're more of a remote-based culture, you can move away from instant messaging and adopt, I don't know, it sounds like sacrilege, but you could move away from Slack and, and IM and use email and like internal blog posts more so that people can work async and not feel like they're always required to respond. And so that downtime aspect is super critical in cultivating well-being. The second thing is really building fellowship. And we think about that through shared experience. So if you go back to those, those metrics that I shared earlier, sadness is, is intrinsically tied to community. So do you feel fellowship with your colleagues? And so that like the concept of a work best friend, or you may have called it a work spouse in the past. If you have a work spouse, you're two times more likely to report satisfaction at work because you have a trusted person that you can express yourself to, again, without retribution in a safe way. So as an employer, I think you can encourage low pressure socialization, something like an onsite event. We've hosted things like truffle making classes, which have no impact on work, but people get to meet new colleagues and yeah. try something out. Or if you're remote, you can play a game on something like Zoom. You can even do that pseudonymously so that you know people could just get in the habit. But ultimately, like these are demonstrations of care from the employer to the employee. And one of the big things that we track is, do you as an employee feel like your employer cares about you? If you say yes to that question, you're nine times more likely to stay at a company for more than three years. That to me is the biggest thing that, that an employer can do, and it is demonstrate your, your care. The last thing, uh, which is the most important and the one that I'm most passionate about because it's it has to do with, uh, uh, if him and I accomplish anything, it's going to be changing how managers manage. But the last thing is really around recognition. You know, if you think about, if you go back to well-being as informed by your outlook for the future, recognition is one of the most important aspects of why you work somewhere and, and why you stay. Creating a culture of recognition is incredibly important in 
um, fostering well-being. So most people get some kind of recognition annually, but around 2% of people get recognition every day. A third of your staff never gets recognized at all. And, and maybe we can say those are the low performers, but it, it's not just the low performers. People are just not being recognized. And so I think as part of cultivating stronger leaders, we need to teach why recognition is so important and also how you recognize. So the way that I think about this is you acknowledge effort, you recognize contributions and fellowship, and then you reward outcomes. Because if, if you reward effort, you cultivate hustle culture. And so these are the kind of the, the building blocks to me around how an employer can improve well-being. My favorite thing you said was recognition is free. You literally pay nothing to recognize someone. And so when people are like, oh, I can't, I can't do employee well-being. I can't do employee wellness. We don't have money. We're in a recession. All those, all those excuses. I think just saying like recognition is free. You can go recognize your employees and they will have higher satisfaction at work if they feel like they're being recognized. I love this. People in the chat are loving everything you were saying. David. Um, so those were three great things you said employers could do. But if there was one thing that we could all leave this session afterwards and do it and instantly start improving well-being, what would it be? Introduce guilt-free downtime. Like make taking a break socially acceptable at work. It's free. It doesn't cost you anything. Uh, this idea that you can opt out of a meeting if you if you need to, go for a walk, do whatever you need to do. I think the, the idea that we can introduce guilt-free downtime is the most important thing. But I do think the hardest part of this is like HR professionals and people people is a lot of our leadership team themselves don't want their employees to take breaks secretly, I think, do not want that. And so when we introduce this concept of guilt-free downtime, it's just going to be interesting to see how leadership reacts to that because ultimately your culture should be modeled by your leaders. And so I do things like take a break. I'll put like 15 minutes on my calendar that just says like, leave me alone. It's, really, it's kind of fun, but like I want someone to look at my calendar and be like, wow, she really needs to be left alone today. But that's on brand. That's on brand for you. That's leave very on brand for I hate it here. Leave me alone. But I think like the you mentioned this earlier, but I do find it super helpful. I know somebody who does not schedule 30 minute meetings. She only schedules 25 minute meetings to ensure that she has that five minutes and she will not accept 30 minute meetings. So just setting that example of saying our meetings are either set to 25 minutes or 45 minutes to give people 15 minutes back on the half hour, five minutes. I found myself running from meeting to meeting and at the beginning of every meeting being like, oh, I'm so sorry, I need to use the bathroom. Oh, I'm so sorry, I have to eat this bowl of oatmeal. Oh, I'm so sorry, I have to do this. And I was like, why am I showing up like half myself in all these meetings? Well, because they were stacked and I had no downtime to recharge between each meeting. I would say that the pandemic and kind of the way that we think about work definitely helped advance in certain ways. There were also things that occurred that I think are a step backwards, right? So like this bleed over in time, right? So it, I don't remember the exact stat, but it's something like you're working 20 to 30% more when you work from home because you start earlier, you stop later, you work through lunch, the way that it affected like your, and, and this might be productivity guilt, but your perception of like how and when to show up you know, there are some downsides to, to what we've experienced. But if, if, if I go back, the, the one thing we could do is make downtime socially acceptable at work. Do it. Everyone put a leave me alone on their calendar for 15 minutes. Every day. 
Sorry, I think it's kind of funny. Sometimes I put really funny meetings on my calendar just to see if anyone ever says anything about them. I think it's a little joke for me. Um, here's, I was leading into this question, but what what do you do if the CEO and leadership, they don't buy into wellness as a focus? We all know the stats about burnout and productivity and happiness at work. What if I honestly have a CEO or leadership team that says they don't care? I think the the main contribution you make is bridging and brokering and being able to stakeholder for both populations, um, management and, and labor and being that, that, that bridger and broker between the two. And so one is, you know, collect and aggregate the evidence, but then improve your ability to persuade and create a shared reality, right? Like creating shared understanding is the most important thing you can do when you're bridging and brokering on behalf of one party to another. In the face of overwhelming evidence, if somebody says, no, I don't think that's a priority, this is where I say you make a change. Whether that's you change the leader, you leave yourself, but like in the face of overwhelming evidence, I don't know how somebody can look at this and say, this is not a priority when the gains are so clear the gains in retention, the gains in productivity, the gains in, in mission adoption are very evident if you focus on well-being. And so I don't know how you look at look at this data and then make the opposite decision. It does require stakeholdering. It does require bridging and brokering. But ultimately, like the leaders that you choose, you have to trust in their decision-making. If you've chosen this leader or if this is, or this is the place you've chosen to work, and that leader is not making good decisions, you're at will. Uh, it works both ways. As everyone knows, my favorite thing to tell people to do is to quit a job if it's not serving you. But I think it's really interesting that you mentioned that like we can give the data and people can still say like, no, I, I know all these benefits and I still don't want to do it because I think it happens all the time. Like we all know the data around DEI and building a diverse, equitable, and an inclusive environment is actually better for the productivity and the bottom line for a company. But so few companies actually make that commitment truly. And it feels it's, more performative. This is what I call the say-do gap. I worked at a consulting firm and they built their business on this. It's the say-do gap. It's what do you say as a brand, as an organization, as an institution, and what is the delta between that and your actions? The authentic brands that you know and love that you have a cognitive recall around that like they are who they say they are that delta is very small we need to advocate internally for that delta being small as well and in our sphere of influence make decisions that are consistent with our values with our positioning with our brand with the objectives that we have that delta is really critical in assessing for yourself and for your customers and ultimately for your employees or as I like to say it, if you're going to talk the talk, walk the walk. Exactly. I think employees will see right through it. Employees see right through it if you're not doing the thing you say you're going to do. You smell it, right? Like, you know what it's, what it's there. Unfortunate. Uh, yeah, yeah, you smell it. <laughs> and, 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 and so, you know when you see it. So. Yeah. Okay. Diving in. I, I The chat has been going off. I'm sure people have questions. We get our, to our live Q&A portion. My favorite part of any HR therapy session is the opportunity for all of you to grill us on the questions you want to ask us. So we just covered like leadership and how they feel about employee well-being. What are some other trends that you're seeing 
in the workplace around what folks are doing for well-being? So I would say like this is um this is not evenly distributed, right? Like have you ever heard the, the features already here? It's just not evenly distributed. So on the on the more progressive end, we are seeing really considered employee engagement strategies where there is not just top down experiences, but bottoms up experiences where employees are able to engage with one another and these kinds of like smaller experiences of them being actioned by, uh, by the company. One of the best examples I can give you is at Bloomberg, they have a company Instagram called Bloomberg Pantry. And this was just like a small, a small thing that they started a few years ago. And now there's 12,000 followers. The company only has 19,000 people. It is like one of the most popular things internally that they have. Uh, and there are pictures of like behind the scenes moments, but then there's also company messages. And it just feels very natural and organic. And so like that, that's something that's more bottoms up, right? Where it started out relatively small and then now it's like taken off internally culturally. So I think about this as like the, the companies that do this well, they don't overthink it. It's just having a human perspective and meeting people where they are. And if you overthink it, you end up not doing anything. It's like analysis paralysis. <laughs> Absolutely. I love that. I, can we go see the Instagram or is it only for- Yeah, it's, it's public. It's public. You can look at it right now. Okay. I do kind of love that. Um, I think the other one last trend, as I asked this question to you, I was thinking about as you were speaking is- there's going to be a focus in 2023, I think, around how to provide equitable experiences for those in a hybrid environment where folks are remote and some folks are in person. It's kind of one of my biggest gripes with employers right now is that a lot of events and a community and experience is built around the in-person experience and less around the people who are remote. And as a remote employee, I'm hoping for that focus in 2023 because sometimes I feel left out. Like as a remote employee, I'm like, wow, I feel lonely at times at home in my pajamas most of the day behind a computer screen. It gets kind of sad sometimes for me. And I like love connection, but people haven't mastered the how do I do the in-person and remote really well in an equitable manner. Part of this is a lot of it doesn't exist yet. I know. And in part, we're actually building this at my company. What has ended up happening is regarding like workplace benefits and employee experience, your work modality has kind of like become a class system. Like you get this because you're remote, you get that because you're on site. And like the experience is not consistent or equitable across those modalities. And so today I'm at home. Hope you enjoy my home office. Yesterday I was at the office. And so where I'm choosing to work should not affect how my employer engages with me. That is really hard though, because there may not be tools available or there may not be like a consideration for your experience of what ends up being meaningful. So the thing that I can tell you is the answer is not more SaaS products, right? The answer is not more digital tools at some level. It's kind of, again, meeting people where they are and using the, the experiences to, to your advantage. So I can tell you that we've done things like hosted um, hybrid events where Everybody, we did you know, do something like dumpling making at home and everybody's on Zoom together making dumplings. At our company, we do uh, remote worker subscription boxes. So they're kind of like Birchbox or like, like Stitch Fix, but for your employees, where you kind of get to send a little bit of your culture to them at home. 
And so, you know, there's a nice message. It's kind of like, the, if you think about the new hire kits that started during the pandemic, it's that just regular, like regular doses of company culture coming to you. That's tangible. It's tactile. It's something that you could engage with. And we see a high level of response from those things. I think about this as like, how do you as an employer create the space for people to connect virtually? Because that's what we use the office for. We use it as a space to express and manifest our culture. So you have to be able to do that virtually, but you, you could still do it physically, right? You can still do it in a way that's not, not through just a digital tool or something. No more SaaS tools, please. The average HR team has like nine of them. We do not need one more tool to figure out how employees are connecting, just trying to get them to connect. I think about that. Also, Dave, I would love like a regular box to my home. So uh, if I can get on the list, let me know. <laughs> I'm just happy. We can arrange something. I love packages. So, you know, <laughs> any little surprise makes me happy. So first question, and six people have upvoted it. How do you get through to a leadership team who clearly doesn't care about employee well-being? That was my last question that I asked Dave. But like, I, I'm going to say it, David, and you tell me if I'm taking it too far, but like, Sometimes you can't get through to everyone. And if you can't get through to them, you have to ask yourself a really hard question of, is this worth my time and my energy to help people understand why well-being of your employees, their mental state, their physical state, their emotional state matters? That's just like baseline empathy. And so if they're like really lacking that, sometimes you have to make a hard decision and say, no, I can't be here anymore. The thing about this, this question is that the closer aligned the incentives, and we can talk about different kinds of organizations, but the closer aligned the incentives, the higher the retention and, and uh, quite frankly, the lower the employee experience. So if you think about like a partnership, like a law firm or consultancy, the actual employee experience is not that great, but the incentives are so aligned that like they kind of get away from it. They kind of get away with it. And so if you're at an organization where the incentives are extremely aligned and you're having trouble breaking through, that may be the reason, right? So like you have to figure out like what the root cause is of why the leadership team is not buying in. And then if you can build your case around that root cause, I think you could be successful. Ultimately though, in the face of this evidence, if, if someone is not buying in, then that is something where you need to action uh, like what Hibbe mentioned. Okay. Top question, how do you deal with an employee who uses well-being for not completing tasks? My understanding of this is they're not doing their work and they're saying, hey, my well-being is really bad. I see you laughing. Why are you laughing, David? Well, because I, I love this question. I, I think it has been my experience that most people come to work wanting to do a good job. Most people do not come to work with the intention to get one over, if you will, on their employer. And so I, I don't think you design policy around edge cases, but what I can say is that for employees who are taking advantage or they are not working with integrity, because I, I was saying this is a this that employee not like lacking integrity. Yeah. I do think you need to have coaching conversations and set clear expectations around performance, around what is acceptable behavior. And this goes back to like good high quality management. You have to be able to have these conversations, right? You have to be able to have a nuanced discussion about well-being as it relates to your individual and personal state, as well as how it, how it connects to your performance. And then you need to be able to have the discussion even further around 
how you're taking advantage of what the company is providing. So it is nuanced. It does require like a high degree of empathy, but also confidence in the assessment that the person is actually taking advantage. So to me, it's a, it's a, it's a one-on-one conversation that is nuanced and does require quite a bit of management expertise. My favorite thing I get like nine out of 10 times when a manager comes to me and says someone is not performing, they're not completing their tasks. The first question I ask is, have you told them what's expected of them? It's also like the first question asked in the Gallup Q12 survey. I know what's expected of me at work contributes to your engagement. And when the manager says no to me, I say, well, you need to go tell them and come back to me if you have told them what's expected of them and they're still not performing. So if there's anything I can fix in this world, it's manager training. It's like, actually, there's there's one problem I'm going to solve for. It's not world peace. It's managers. They're, they're the problem. It, it, we you know, now we're just going to go rogue. So there are three yeah. things that I think that is, that is number one. So, you know, already setting expectations. And then uh, the next thing is, does the manager know how that person likes to be coached? Right? Do you know how to coach that person? A lot of times, people will say, "I just like direct, honest feedback." Liars. And what I what I found is the level of intensity of that feedback determines whether or not they ingest it. The timing when that feedback takes place does it happen in real time? Does it have to happen after the fact in a retrospective? Does it happen in a group discussion? Does it happen one on one? There's a lot of nuance in how somebody likes to be coached. And so the, the first thing, did you set performance expectations? Two, do you know how the person likes to be coached? And the three is, do you know how the person likes to be recognized? Because some people do not like public recognition. So do you know how that person likes to be recognized? And so I think you need to, have, you need to be able to answer those three questions before you then say it is a challenge. Uh, it is an employee problem, not a management problem. Almost every employee problem is actually a manager problem. And that's why I will never stop singing from the rooftops that managers need to be trained on all these things. Two questions I love asking my direct reports when I first start managing a team is like, what's your preferred working style? I want to ask them how they want to do work so that I can better understand how to manage them. And the second question I ask, I I eventually end up asking the recognition about the second one I ask is, how do you prefer to receive feedback? And David is so right. People will say, I want it direct and right away. And Nine out of 10 times, they actually do not want that. They liars. don't want that. Liars. They're liars. Well, it's because they're trying to say like, yeah, you can give me feedback. I like it. And the reality is feedback is hard for all of us. And like, I want to destigmatize the idea that like anyone can be really good at receiving feedback because it's human nature to get defensive the second you get feedback. And so if we all just acknowledge that we're in a fight and flight moment when we're getting feedback and we push through that, then we can actually get to the good stuff. And so asking your employees how you want that feedback, life-changing. Moving on, question, how can you get a leadership team to understand the say slash do gap from an employee perspective? I love sharing things from the employee perspective, like telling them when you do this, this is how an employee interprets it. And I kind of play that out with them, a game-playing scenario. A lot of times, the leadership team will come back and say, well, do you have any data on that? And I'm like, all right, here we go. You need the data to prove it. And an engagement survey, in any sort of like pulse survey, 
you can ask this question and get real data from your employees anonymously. And then usually I walk it right back to the leadership team and I say, not only have I anecdotally told you that our employees are seeing the gap between what we say we're going to do and what we actually do, now it's also manifesting in a survey. And here's like the real data behind it. Like eight out of 10 of our employees say that we're not actually fulfilling what they expect of us. And I start the conversation there. Understanding the gap is super important for the leadership team because you can only lose trust so many times with your employees before they actually just end up leaving or completely disengage. If you're going to engage with a leader on the team, I think the first step is is don't assume malintent. I think often we can look look at the say do gap and think they're doing this intentionally, and oftentimes it's, it's not intentional. So I, I think the first step is don't assume malintent, and then clearly identify where the gaps are. Um, we're expressing this externally, we're expressing this internally, but here's how it's actually manifesting. And I think if you approach it from the perspective with goodwill and you approach it with the perspective of having goodwill, then I think it's, it's a lot easier to address. Oftentimes where I see this go awry is when it's approached as something intentional or with malintent. That's a good point. I do have a gripe about the like assuming positive intent always situation, because I think when that becomes like part of the culture, sometimes people use that in a bad way to like excuse their bad behavior. They're like, oh, but like, shouldn't you just assume I was trying to do the good thing? And in your mind, you're like, wait, no, you've several times I've done the wrong thing. It doesn't work anymore. Well, this goes back to smelling it, right? That is also part of the say do gap, right? Like if it is somebody weaponizing culture, that is part of the say do gap. God, I'm going to do a whole setting on the say do gap. That's going to my new life mission. Um Next question. I'm starting a mental wellness employee resource group at my company. One, thank you for doing that. That's great. We're struggling to go beyond vague goals to daily action actionables. What do you recommend? I'm going to say that I'm not an expert in mental wellness uh, before anything. I'm also not an expert, but I, I like that the employees are getting together around this topic I would highly encourage that you find a professional who can help here. If the employee resource group has a budget, I would ask for it. And I would go find somebody who can help facilitate a conversation. One, because your mental health is important. And there are parts of our mental health that is also confidential as employees. And I don't want any of your employees to feel like they have to disclose confidential information about what they're dealing with in an unsafe or unfit space. That's like the HR compliance piece of it. I think what I would ask is, what role do you want the employee resource group to serve? Is it an education function? Is it a development function? Is it in the support community, right? So what role do you want the ERG to serve? And I think if if you answer those questions, you can then kind of build out what the daily actionables are. There are a lot of great tools on the market too, like not to pull one more SaaS tool, but like in Slack, there are a lot of great tools you can use to like actually help facilitate mental wellness in a way that's anonymous and safe. So I'd consider also thinking about that as well. What about when you're new and notice that the culture and well-being is low, but the org is stuck in a rut or low desire for change? You just described like 90% of corporate America. Poke the bear. That's a lot. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Lots of fast. Lots of fast today. <laughs> 
and click mm-hmm. in. I think this is one, I think it's, it's on you to assess the company during your interview process. And if you've identified this before you joined and you decided to join anyway, I think you do have a responsibility to help promote a positive work culture and kind of be the change. A lot of times, like one person can change a group dynamic. And so you, you could potentially be that person. Now, if you join the organization and then you unexpectedly encounter, you know, this kind of like low culture or the company is kind of like stuck in a rut or, or has no desire to change or evolve, I think you need to assess the trade-offs because again, this is a value exchange. So like, are there aspects of your role? Maybe it's increased scope. Maybe it's increased pay that you're willing to trade off culture or well-being for, or are you willing to make the additional investments in that company to see it grow? If the answer to one of those questions is no, then I think you made a, a decision that you have to revisit. If the answer to what either one of those questions is yes, I think you consider whether or not you want to stay and get something out of it. The, the way that I think about this is like, what is winning to you? If you define winning for you, I think you could make this decision um, for yourself. The only thing I will add to is like, sometimes it's really hard to change an organization. I'm not saying it's impossible and I'm not saying we should run away and be scared of it. It's just like we as human beings do not like change. And so if you join an organization and they have a low desire for change, it's just worth exploring why. What are they afraid of? And how can you as the HR or people person unlock that fear for them where they end up becoming an organization that wants to change? That's a big picture, like meta stuff, but it's something to think about when we do our job. I also have said this quite a bit recently is like, I would never tell anyone to take an HR or people job if they do not like conflict because we have to manage conflict daily. And also like a big part of change will also probably incite some conflict about how people feel towards the change. So I say that again, like if you are somebody who has harmony as their top strength and really does not like it and is uncomfortable by it, like this might not be the best job fit for you. And that's okay to say too. It's just, there's a lot of conflict that comes with change. Um, How do I encourage my agency to push past telling people to take care of themselves and actually foster them in doing so. I think you might have to write an article on the say do gap. Uh, it's it's resonating. We've talked about this a few times already, but I, I think one aspect of this is just getting started, right? So, like when I say overthinking it, you know, co- collective organizing is again another taboo topic that we talk about. But like you can organize for different things. I'm not saying you organize to form a union. And that's what I'm encouraging. What I'm saying is like, you can, as a group, organize around things that you want to do. So, hey, bottoms up culture, we're going to now schedule meetings for 25 minutes. And then it's just going to start permeating the organization, right? You could just start doing some of these things and, and kind of seeding the change bottoms up. And, you know, from a leadership standpoint, you have to pay attention to what's happening bottoms up. And so... If you see that trend occurring, you can look, seek to embrace that trend or you can seek to quell that trend. And so again, I go back to like, do you, do you have confidence in the leaders you've chosen to work for and their ability to embrace that change? 
And if they can embrace that change, great. But there's no reason why a small marketing team or a project team at an agency or this group can't start camping bottoms up. And, you know, I would, I would leverage your values and, and whatever is stated as culture to utilize it as a tool, right? Like I think over time you learn how to use culture as a tool and you can use culture as a tool bottoms up. I was about to say, are we about to like incite a revolution? The revolution of work. Here we go. Um, there are so many other great questions here. I have a whole log of them. I'll touch on them throughout the quarter of well-being, which is my focus for all my content this quarter. Um, and I think next week, I think I might write on the say do gap. Honestly, all of you really liked that. And I think my topic for next week can be punted to another time and I might have to write on the say do gap. So thank you, David, and everyone here for inspiring that. Our next episode of HR Therapy will be January 25th. It's in two weeks on the same time. Um, and then finally, I stuck some final takeaways in here quickly. Your employees' well-being matters and it impacts their work. Don't forget that. Depressurize the day. Dave, I, I, David, I'd love that you say that. It, like, I'm going to think about that every time I put my leave me alone on my calendar. And make it okay to have guilt-free downtime. Even if it's just putting a coffee break on your employees, even if it's just a stretch break, even that silliness about like doing a plank for a minute, take that and make it like five minutes of rest and recharge at the top of every hour. I think your employees will really appreciate it and you will start to see changes. And finally, I did not thank my wonderful sponsors at the beginning of this event. So I'm going to thank them right now at the end, as I always do. But thank you to Newsstand, which David joined us from, and the Predictive Index for sponsoring my events. I could not do this. I could not bring these conversations to all of you and have them without my sponsors. And so for that, I am deeply grateful for them. And I have so much excitement around what's to come this quarter. We'll also have someone from the Predictive Index joining us on one of our HR therapies soon. So thank you, David, so much. And if people wanted to reach you or newsstand, how should they go about doing that, David? I'm NYCDDG on all social channels. Follow, like, and subscribe. And it's, <laughs> uh, it's, it's newsstand, uh, newsstand.com. Yeah. Um, you. You'll see them in my um, newsletter as well. Let me know if you all have any questions. Thank you again for taking time out of your day to join us for HR Therapy. I deeply appreciate all of you. I can't wait to see you all next week. Thank you, everyone. Have a good day. Thank you again, David. You're the best. Thanks. Bye, all. Thanks for tuning in. Keep up with all the latest HR resources by subscribing on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen. And if you love I Hate It Here, tell an HR friend. I'll see you next time.